0: Matthew chapter 2, if you will, go ahead and turn there to Matthew chapter 2. In a Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown's little sister, Sally, says to Snoopy, Everyone should be like me. I've asked for nothing for Christmas. I'm totally unselfish. If everyone was like me, this world would be a better world. Maybe someone will start a new movement where everyone will try to be like me. Now, when you think of that, you've got to be thinking, how does that relate to Christmas? How in the world does that even relate to Matthew chapter 2? Well, today we're talking about humility versus pride. And of course, what we read here with little Sally and what she's trying to bring to the table when it comes to how she thinks people need to respond to her, we definitely see a form of humility which is soaked in pride. <laughs> so if you bring the two together, you definitely have it. We're continuing the series this morning, a Christmas cameo, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a comparison between the wise men and Herod the Great. If you'll look at the introduction down on your outline, at the heart of sin is something known as pride. At the heart of sin is pride. It is the motivation and foundation for all sin. Now, if you were to say, okay, now, let me think of all the different sins. Let me try to arrange them or put them in some kind of order. What you'll find is the motivation for that sin, the foundation for that sin, for any sin, is the sin of pride. Pride caused the rebellious angels, along with Lucifer, the enemy, to be cast out of heaven. Pride caused Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. And so you see that pride shows up all through Scripture. It even visits the story of Jesus coming to this world. And it comes through the character known as Herod. So look on your outline. The Christmas story has models of both pride and humility. It presents a contrast between a foolish king who is disgraced by his pride and wise men that are honored for their humility. Now, this story will bring the conflict or will illustrate the conflict that takes place every day in our own hearts. There's that constant struggle of how will I respond to life? Will I respond to life through a means of humility or will I respond to life through a means of pride? And every one of us deal with that. So this morning, I want us to look at the Christmas story, and I want us to to not overlook the wise men and what they literally bring to the story itself. Now, when we think of the wise men, what we think of are the gifts that they brought. And they were tremendous gifts, and and they were good gifts, but they bring a whole lot more that meets the eye. So the first thing we see there is that the wise men were intelligent yet teachable. They were intelligent, yet teachable. Now, let me say this. A teachable spirit speaks much about a person's humility. And and of course, I think we know this, but you cannot be taught anything if you think you know it all. And so many times we come across people who seem to know it all. You ever met those people? You tell a story and they have something greater to tell about the story. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's, it's motivated. It manifests itself through a means of prize. So in Matthew chapter 2, let us just look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, about the wise men. We don't know exactly who these men were. We don't know exactly where they really came from except for the east, and that could have been many different locations from the east. We don't know how many actually came. Uh, Many times when we put our manger sets together, what do we always have? We have three wise men. Well, the reason we think it was possibly three is because there were three gifts, but it could have been more than three. We don't know how long it took for them to get there, except it is believed that Jesus was from the age of one and a half to two years of age when they actually showed up. We don't know exactly what they saw in the sky, except it was very apparent that the wise men were brilliant astronomers. One thing we do know is that the wise men just didn't sit around. They knew that there was something to learn, something to see in a foreign land. So they were highly intelligent, yet very teachable. And then we come to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. It says, saying, where is he? They, the wise men said, where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, the Bible says in Galatians, that God, basically, it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When, when it was time, when God said, okay, now now listen, it's time to reveal heaven's greatest prize. Heaven's greatest prize is the son of God. When it was time, there had been 400 years of silence and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up there in Bethlehem. And sometime after that, these wise men were drawn to the area. Now, isn't it amazing to think that centuries before, God arranged the movement of the stars to precisely coincide with the birth of his son. Now, the 18 months surrounding the time of the wise men's journey to Bethlehem, the night sky produced the most to see by the naked eye than any other time in a 3,000-year period. Now, I want you to think about this. Astronomers agree with this. Those who are believers and those who are not believers agree that around this time, this time period, between two to three years around the birth of Jesus, there's been nothing like for 3,000 years that was seen in the skies more than what was seen in those days by the naked eye. And so all these things were coming together. Now, I did a little research on the star and what could have happened during the first part of the first century. Now, what did the wise men see? Some people say, well, they saw a comet. And if you go back, how many of you remember Halley's Comet? How many of you were around when it came around? Uh, Yeah, Halley's Comet. But do you know it came through around 12 BC? So that takes it out of the realm of possibility. Not only that, back in the ancient cultures, comets were seen as a bad omen Possibly an evil omen. So they would not be looking for that. Some would say well, it's, uh, it's a meteor. Well, it wasn't a meteor because it was something that stayed in the sky for at least uh, a, a time period of months, possibly even a year. Astronomer Dr. Craig Chester writes, In September of 3 BC, which puts around the time of Jesus' birth, Jupiter came into conjunction with Regulus, the star of kingship. The brightest star in the constellation of Leo. In ancient days, this is interesting, Leo was a constellation of kings and it was associated with the Lion of Judah. Now these were in ancient ancient times. The royal planet approached the royal star in the royal constellation representing Israel itself. Just a month earlier than this, Jupiter and Venus had almost seemed to touch one another in another close conjunction, also in the constellation of Leo. Then the conjunction between Jupiter and Regulus was repeated not once but twice in 2 BC. It happened in February and it happened again in May. Finally, in 2 B.C., Jupiter and Venus came together, the two brightest objects in the sky, except for the sun and the moon, of course, and they experienced an even closer encounter some months later when their disk, or when the planets, appeared to touch to the naked eye, thus becoming a single object above the setting sun. This exceptionally rare spectacle would not have been missed by the Magi or by the three wise men. They would have known exactly what was going on. So the, the story, it's interesting, the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus coming to the world seemed to be announced not only by the angels, but also by the stars and the planets. You come to Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, it says, When they heard the king... They departed and behold, so the wise men go to King Herod. uh, There's a dialogue that we're so familiar with. And it says, and behold, the star which had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. There was something that led them to a certain location. Now, regardless of how the wise men knew, they were obviously scholarly men, yet they were not pompous or arrogant. They were still searching to learn more. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, 2, it says, when pride comes, then then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. And we see this with these wise men. Second of all, the wise men were men yet asked for directions. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? They did. How many of you men have a hard time with something called direction? Raise your hand. Yeah, amen. Thank you for your help, yeah. Patty, I'm glad you joined in on that. All right, but anyway, <laughs> so the wise men were men to ask for direction. So look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, saying, here's a, Here it is, where's the king who has been born king of the Jews? So they went to Herod, Where, where's this baby at? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, let me just say this to you men out there the whole idea about not asking for help is all about ego. Ego. Here, here's what we're saying. Trust me, I got this when we don't ask for directions. How, how many of you have uh, uh, that, that, that passenger that's normally in the car with you? It says, Won't we just stop and ask somebody? How many of you women can relate to that part of the story? Yes, more hands went up. But, it, but it's very interesting that, that that whole idea is really about ego. Daniel Boone was once asked if he'd ever been lost. He replied, No, I've never been lost. But he did admit that he was confused for about three or four days. <laughs> oh, me. Someone has rightly said, Do you know what would have happened if there had been three wise women instead of three wise men? They would have asked for directions sooner, arrived on time to help deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, and would, give, would have given practical gifts. <laughs> probably a lot is true in that. Next, the wise men were prominent, yet worshiped a child. In Matthew chapter two, look at verse nine. When they heard the king, they departed and behold the star which they'd seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with his mother. And fell down and worshipped him. You see, the wise men were worshipping. Think about what was happening here. These were men who were looked up to. These were very prominent people. And the wise men were worshipping not a mature, dignified king, but a small child. Not in a capital city, but in an obscure village. Not in an ornate palace, but in a modest home. I mean, think about it. Everything about the story it is contrary to what you would suspect, and I'm sure contrary to what they suspected. Next, the wise men were wealthy, yet spiritually sensitive. We see that in our gifts. In Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 11, it says, And they had come into the house, saw the young child would marry his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasure, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The value of these gifts would have been very much that it is believed that Mary and Joseph could have lived two years on just the gifts they were given. Kind of amazing when you think about it. The gold, it was a symbol of kingship or virtue. Frankincense was a symbol of deity or prayer. Myrrh was a symbol of death or suffering. All were very costly gifts. Jesus once said this concerning those who are wealthy. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But then he adds this, and so many times we we don't realize this verse is there too. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And what we're watching here in this story are wise men, very wealthy men who are coming, and, and they're coming in humility, and, and, and they're spiritually sensitive to, what, sensitive to what may be going on. I want you to think about this. We're a rich country. We're made up of a lot of wealthy people, and some of you are sitting in this room, and you're like, I would not definitely be classified as wealthy. I'm very fortunate to live week to week. But did you know in comparison to the rest of the world, we're all very wealthy, Affluence makes it difficult for people to be spiritually sensitive because temptations are intensified due to increased opportunity. There's so much more trouble that a person can get into. There's so much more that keeps them away from the things that are very important many times because of wealth. Even though the wise men were influential and wealthy, they still had humility about them and appeared to be spiritually hungry for something more. Next, the wise men were wise, yet obeyed God. Look at verse 12. Then being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. You see, what he, this is where we learned that they obeyed the word of God. They didn't pridefully say, oh, we can deal with that madman named Herod. It's shorter to go this way. Let's just continue to do what we want to do. No, you know what they did? They listened and they obeyed. And so we see the humility of the wise men. It's in sharp contrast to the pride that we see in Herod. Look on your outline. Herod was competitive, just as pride. Did you know that pride is very competitive? Pride basically says this within us. It's that whole idea that I think I'm better than you and I'm going to prove it to you. And so many times it shows up that way. So look at Matthew chapter 2. I want you to go back to verse 3. Let's look at Herod's side of the story. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, when they heard about a new king. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And of course, that is the promise of the Messiah. But here's what's interesting: Herod didn't want competition. He wanted to get rid of the competition, but yet he was competitive. And the fact remains that, that pride always leads you down a competitive road. And when you start looking at yourself and start comparing yourselves to others, and it's that whole idea that I can do better. I am better. Next, we see the competitive ways of pride. It breeds self promotion. Self promotion. Have you ever been around people that about every third word that comes out of their mouth is I? You ever been around that? You see, that's the whole idea of self promotion. It's the whole idea of of how pride can can establish itself in in a competitive way. What it is, it means having to constantly tell others what you have done. They live in the I world. They look at what I have done. Look at me. Aren't you impressed? And you see, that's the way Herod was. Herod the Great, believe it or not, in the first century, was one of the greatest builders the world had ever seen up to that point. Some of the things that he built were outstanding. He, he rebuilt the temple for the Jews, and they say it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. He built a whole seaport, and you can go there today and, and, and see how it's outlined. And I mean, he did phenomenal things. But I believe he was motivated by that whole idea: "See, look what I have done." Next, the competitive ways of pride to breed suspicion. Pride holds in suspicion anyone who poses a threat to his or her position. One historian described Herod the Great. This is how he was described. As a tyrant, cruel, morally corrupt, and greedy. He was closer to a mafia figure than a political personality. He often resorted to murder to eliminate his opponents or his critics. He even murdered his own wife and, and three of his sons. The joke in Rome was this, that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his children. Next, Herod was deceptive, just as pride. Did you know pride's deceptive? It seeks to hide itself. It seeks to manipulate things around them or the person filled with pride. Humility, I want you to think about this, is transparent. Humility will say, I made a mistake. Humility says, I'm sorry. Humility admits sin. But pride is always very guarded. Pride frequently wears a mask in an attempt to impress others, to deceive others, to hide intentions. And we see that here. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may also come and worship him. Now, we know the story, don't we? Was he looking to worship him? No, he's looking to eliminate him. Because there was a whole idea of suspicion. There was the whole idea that he was hiding something. So Herod pretended to be spiritual. He manipulated the situation. You go find the Messiah. Come back, tell me. I want to go worship him. But he was trying to advance his own agenda. Here's what he did. He made the greatest moment in history, listen, about himself. Think of the arrogance that is there. Next, the deceptive ways of pride breeds invincibility, invincibility. People who are eat up with pride many times, they sometimes don't believe they can be touched, that they are greater than certain things that we know will eventually touch our lives, that they can rise above anything, that they're indestructible. Think about how silly it was to see a baby as a threat to his throne. Historians calculate that at this time, Herod was probably in his late 60s. It would take 20 or 30 years before the child would be mature enough to take a throne. That would mean that Herod would be between 90 to 100 years old. But he didn't have to worry about the child, but his competitive pride deluded him. He thought he was invincible. Next The deceptive waves of pride breeds insecurity. Insecurity. You ever been around people who were insecure? Insecurity, the person who's insecure hurts those who are around them. Because when we have insecurities, you know what we attempt to do? To feel good about ourselves, we're constantly trying to push other people down. We don't want them to rise up. Uh, there's a jealous streak in us. We, we don't want to see the success in them. We don't, we don't want to help uh, mentor or foster that in another person. It takes great humility to invest in another person and not be threatened by it or try to be manip- manipulative in it. And yet, many times, it's still there. Next, Herod was vindictive just as pride. The vindictive ways of pride, first of all, breeds destruction It brings destruction. Herod, listen, couldn't stand that someone else was going to be a king. And we see that in Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Now, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared uh, to Joseph uh, saying, Arise, Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And so when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son Then Herod, when he saw that he had been deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who lived in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years of age and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. You see, think about this. All of this destruction, all of this death, was because of a man's pride, because of a man's ego. You see, if we're not careful, if pride takes up center in our hearts and in our soul, if we're not careful, it brings destruction. And sometimes to those that we're close to, sometimes those that we depend on, sometimes those that we love the most, pride is very destructive. Pride is not rational. Listen, it is hateful. It's vindictive. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibilities of love, contentment, and even common sense. It's a great quote. Next, the vindictive ways of pride breeds death. In Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 19. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life. Are dead. You know, it's interesting that Herod's death happened within, they say, six months, listen, of them fleeing to Egypt. Within six months, he's gone. There seemed to be a link between Herod's pride and his own death. And so over the last several weeks, I want us to kind of bring this series to a close. We've seen the cameos of Zacharias, the father John the Baptist, the shepherds, and today the wise men, now enters the main character of the greatest story ever told. The main character, listen, of this story is that baby in a manger. His name's Jesus. It's the one that we're celebrating right now. It's the time of year that we've chosen to celebrate his birth, his first coming. And so here's the application this morning. The Bible says be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. I want you to think about this concerning Jesus. Think of these examples. He came into this world humbly. Now think about this. If you were the God of the universe... The one that put it all together. How would you have sent him? How would you have sent him? I mean, we, we, I've, I've, I've looked at it. I thought to myself, man, if I was going to send my son, I created the world. And he was going, boy, they want to know he came. I'm going to light up the sky. Well, he did with one star, didn't he? But I would light up the sky. I would have an angelic host singing the hallelujah chorus, even though there wasn't a hallelujah chorus back then. But, I mean, it would all be set up. It would be beautiful. It would be, dr- I mean, the drama. I mean, it would be amazing. And yet, how did he come? Born. Listen, born in a stable. How about this? Think of the example of Jesus' humility. He served others humbly. He served others. When you you read the gospel account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're finding there is the 33 years of a man who came to serve us. You know what his favorite title was? Son of man. You know what that means? Servant of man. That was his favorite title. That's the way he liked to be referred to. He came to serve. Even facing death, he bowed his head in the garden of Gethsemane, humbly saying, not my will, Father, but yours. Here's another example. He took a humble posture when they arrested him. You remember when they came to arrest him? You remember Peter saying, I'm going to defend you, Lord. And he pulls out his sword and chops off the ear of the soldier that came to do the arresting. And basically what you have there is Jesus saying, no, we're not going to do it this way. Again, humility. How about when they beat him? They beat him severely. When you fast forward, you, you know we're looking at a babe in a, in a manger right now. We're looking at a, 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 the first coming of, of, of the Messiah, and all of a sudden it leads 33 years later to, to absolute humility as they begin to beat him. I really wonder sometimes how God the Father could restrain himself. You ever thought about that? How much you love your own children, and how much more you love your grandchildren? No, I'm kidding. and you look at that scenario and you think how how I don't know about you I'd have been throwing some lightning bolts at that moment yet God the father said he he kind of removed himself and, and and let them the the evil of this world handle his son and how did Jesus respond to it humbly humbly Look on your outline. Even though Jesus was deity, he was the perfect example of humility. The perfect example. Isn't it amazing how some human beings can be so prideful? And yet the God of the universe sends his son who was co-creator with him, who put it all together, who holds it all together. Yet he came and for 33 years... Lived in humility. Lived in humility. And yet we think we can pop on the scene with great pride and 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 and, and the destruction that comes with it, and we don't care. And look at me, look at who I am, look at what I've become. And yet we see it everywhere. But the example was nothing close to that. In Philippians chapter 2, as we begin to close. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You're talking about humility. There's, you couldn't say it any better. This is a perfect description of what it looks like. And being found in appearance as a man, listen, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And if you've you've learned anything in church over the years or as you've been raised with the story of Jesus, you know that the cross was not about him being punished for his sins. It was not about him being punished for who he is. It was completely about our sin and what needed to be rectified in our own lives. That pride may be replaced with humility in our own life. He came to die for us. Therefore, verse 9, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, the Jesus name, the, the one that came, the one who lived in humility. He says, listen, I'm going to raise him up, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and those in those of heaven and those of earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we close... 33 years of humility. What is a response? What is the proper response to humility? It's not pride, it's humility. The proper pers- response to humility is humility. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you, do you know what you're doing? You're placing yourself humbly before Him. You're basically acknowledging that your sin is something that was rooted in pride. That your sin, you know deep down, is going to resort in destruction and eternal destruction if you're not careful. And then you turn to, hum- to humility and you basically look to humility and say, God, listen, I, I don't have it all together. I need to trust your son. I- God, I just want you to know that-, that I want to turn from my ways. I want to turn from my pride. And I want to turn to humility by laying my life before you. Y'all, that's what salvation is all about. That's what all this is about. That is our only response, listen, to the humility that Jesus showed when he walked the face of the earth. In just a moment, we're going to prepare for communion. And basically, what I want you to do is, I want you to use this time to reflect. Reflect on where you are with the Lord. Reflect on the times that pride has had its way with you. Reflect on the time that humility should be the thing at the core of who you are. Because the greatest example of one who ever lived was Jesus, and it was the example of humility. Fathers, husbands, our wives, our children need to see a man of humility, they do. And when we begin to look more like Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, things begin to fall in place. When's the last time you responded to your wife in humility? When's the last time you responded to your kids? I'm not talking about giving them everything they want. I'm not talking about they become king of the house. You're raising a monster at that point. I'm talking about when just going before them and saying, you know something? I want to follow the example of Jesus. And as your father, I want to be known as a man of humility because Jesus was greatest example that ever lived. I don't know where you are this morning. You, you may have never come in, humili- in humility and responded to the humbleness of what Jesus has done by dying on the cross, being raised from the dead. Maybe you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior and said, Yeah, this is my example. I want to invite you to come. In just a moment, I'm going to be here at the front. We just want you to do what God's calling you to do. Second of all, maybe you're a Christian. You're sitting here today, and you know something's just not quite right. Something's not quite right. Can I tell you what's at the core of it? Pride. It's pride. And maybe you need to make that right before we take communion here in just a moment. Maybe you need to get around here and just kind of kneel or kneel there in your seat. We just ask you to do what God's calling you to do. I'm just going to invite you to stay seated during this time of reflection. I'm going to be here at the front. Just if you need someone to pray with you or ask more questions of, I'll be right here. To just slip out and come forward. Would you just bow your heads right now and just reflect on where you are with Christ as we prepare for communion? Would you do that? Father, we just come to you now, and as we prepare to take communion, Lord, I know that uh, this is something that's been commanded of us, but also this is a time that we don't come too lightly. Lord, help us to realize if there's something between ourselves and you that, Lord, that we'll make that right before we begin to, to deal with those things that are holy. Father, I just pray that, Lord, that you've done a work in our life already, Lord. I just thank you that the convicting role of the Holy Spirit is in this place to, to take your word and to convict us of those things, of those things in our life that's keeping us to, from being all that you desire us to be. Father, I pray that if we take anything from this sermon this morning, it's that we are to walk humbly before you and follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're getting ready to take communion. And what we do here is a little different than maybe some of you are used to, but uh, we have different stations here up front. There's five different stations. You can actually get two people or two families on each station, however it works for you. We encourage you to come as a family. We just think this is a great time for you as a family to come around and uh, take communion. It's also maybe your young children have not received Christ yet. Uh, this is for those who have received Christ. And maybe, maybe they just need to come with you and observe and watch. Uh, it's a great learning tool for them. And we invite you to teach them through this process. Take as much time as you need. But we invite you in just a moment to come forward. I'm getting ready to read the text that Jesus told his disciples uh, just before his death, burial, and resurrection. We're getting ready to read that text. And after I do that, I'm going to have a prayer. And after that prayer, I'm just going to invite you just to come forward. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't want to do that initially. We don't need everybody up here at one time. But just kind of, if you see a table that's open, just kind of hit one of the tables. They're all around the front here. All right? The Bible says in Luke chapter 22, when the hour had come that Jesus sat down with the 12 apostles with him, then he said to them, with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And this is the part that we'll be participating in. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I mean, I want you to think about that. There's just something he wanted us to remember. <laughs> I think it was definitely a pointing to his death. Uh, the body that's going to be broken, the blood that's going to be shed. But there's so much more around it. It is the life that he lived. He showed us the way. He demonstrated it. And he says, remember this. Verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. All this, he's saying basically all all this is for you. What I'm about to do is for you. I want you to remember this. Always remember this. Now, how could we remember it? Well, we could come up here and take a cracker and wash it down with some grape juice. Or we can come here today and say, you know something? My Lord and Savior hung on a cross, hung on a cross until his last breath, placed into a tomb. He would remain there. And on the third day, He would have victory, listen, not over his own sin, over our sin and over death. And that's for those, that's what we're identifying with here. And I hope that's your prayer and I hope that's the way you'll come to this table this morning. After I pray, would you come? Father, we just come to you now and we thank you so much for your blessings, Lord, in our lives and and Lord, we look around at this time of year and we see the busyness of the schedules. We, we, we're probably already thinking about all that's got to happen this afternoon and tomorrow. But Lord, help us to carve out these moments right now to just focus on what the coming of that child really meant. It meant the death, burial, and resurrection of that child. That child being the Messiah, Jesus. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken on our behalf. We thank you that the wrath that was due us was placed on him, Father. But not only that, we thank you that that blood has given us forgiveness before a Holy Father. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come?
1: So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh.